Welcome to Birth of a Mama, a podcast for sharing stories about the experience of motherhood from birth, the moments immediately after and beyond. I'm your host, Natalie Welch, registered dietitian and mom of one energetic baby girl. Through sharing our stories and hearing the experiences of others, we can all feel heard and heal. Postpartum is forever. Postpartum is hard. And this podcast brings you the raw, honest truth. Today, I have Deborah Bowman on the podcast. She shares her very difficult and exhausting experience of having a baby from preconception on. Talking to her was so easygoing, it felt like I was chatting with my sister or a really close friend. She keeps it real, just open and forward about how dark postpartum can get when you're isolated and alone with a newborn during a pandemic. She goes deep into everything from two years of infertility struggles to how different she would like next time to be if there ever is a next time. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy Deborah's story as much as I did. Hi, Deborah. Welcome to Birth of a Mama. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me here. Yeah, of course. I'm so happy to have you here. Let's start off with having you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your family. All right. So I am Deborah Bauman, born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, my husband, Zach, and I have been married for... I have to think about that. Seven years. Um, we have a little girl who just turned three. Um, and like I have heard from so many people, three is a wild age <laughs> that I was wholly unprepared for. Um, she just started preschool. So this has been a huge season of change for us to start fall with, but it's been very exciting too. So Nice. Yeah, we are getting to the almost the two year old mark and we're going to start her in preschool mm. probably around then. So I know our lives are also going to change changes the inevitable part. <laughs> Absolutely. The socialization, I think, has been the best part of it. Just seeing her with other kids and learning new things. She's become so much more vocal since she started preschool. So I think we're about to hit the transition I've heard about where they start really talking and then they just never stop talking <laughs> ever again. But yeah, and she's a September birthday. So like to be starting preschool at three has been a little nerve wracking, but she is super brave. She's my super brave baby and she's been doing amazing. So. Oh, that's so good to hear. Yeah. Love her. When they start being able to express themselves and their wants and their needs, mm -hmm. it really makes things so much easier. But then, yeah, there's always that sweet spot yes. of like, you want them to talk because you want to be able to give them what they're asking for. But then, yeah, then eventually they're probably just not going to shut up and we're going to be like, oh, I kind of miss those <laughs> days when all they could do was <laughs> grunt and point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also like to ask my listeners, you know, if you had to describe the transition into motherhood in three words, which can be kind of hard, um, which would you choose? So I thought a lot about this, and I could only really think of overwhelming. That was the main word that came to mind, um, was just overwhelming. Um, and then the other word I thought of was unexpected. And I think that ties a lot into the fact that everything about my pregnancy and then postpartum was both of those things. Um, honestly, for me, the birth was the easy part, uh, the childbirth, and it was kind of everything else that was just challenging. It was very challenging. So we can add that word to the list too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Overwhelming, unexpected, and challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are pretty spot on for me. Like those resonate hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting here <laughs> nodding like, yep, yep, yep. Um. And part of me feels bad because they sound like very negative words, but I think that things can be unexpected and overwhelming in positive ways too. So there, there is good along with the more challenging parts for sure. It's kind of like in life, right? Nothing worth having is ever easy, ever comes easy, right? I hear that saying a lot or, you know, we've mm -hmm. kind of, everyone's kind of heard that in some way, shape or form, I think. And there's so much truth to that. Like all of the things that I've ever achieved in my life that were really awesome to have and have like a lot of positive, 
you know, characteristics to them were extremely difficult to either get or to keep or, you know, so I think that it's very similar in that. And I know it can come off as negative. And I feel like sometimes that maybe is like the vibe of the podcast in a way of like, oh my God, motherhood sounds so hard. Like if someone's listening that doesn't have kids, they're probably like, oh my God, why would I ever want to, you know, do that? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it, it really does. It is worth it in so many little ways along the way. And the, and the ways change that it, it's worth it, right? There's all these different like seasons and yeah. stages. And yeah, that's a very good point. That And it's just, it's also just your reality. You know what I mean? Like yours is going to be different than mine is going to be different than the next person's. But there's also usually a lot of overlap. I think having so many women come on and share their stories. I see between women who have no idea who the other one is. There's so many, you know, similarities, differences, of course, because every everyone's story is unique. But I think there's this collective challenge that comes with motherhood, no matter no matter who you are. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's good to talk about those challenging parts, too, because, you know, a lot of times when we, especially with social media now, and you look through and we see so much of the highlight reel, and then to talk about the challenging parts and the more difficult parts that in and of itself can feel really hard because you don't want to be like, Oh my gosh, you know, like you said, I don't want to make it sound like, Oh my God, motherhood. Why would I ever want to do that? Like that's, that's really not what we're saying. It's more just, it's really hard and it's how we approach it and tackle it and talk through the hard things that helps make it worth it too. I think. Yeah. I hope that made sense. <laughs> totally. And uh, like, absolutely. That That's, I think that that's kind of one of the goals of m- me having this podcast is to like share people's real, raw, unfiltered, like non-highlight <laughs> real, you know, th- the real stuff. Like this is what we are really experiencing. This is our actual story. Um, because I I wished that I had had a resource like this before I had become a mom, not to scare myself, but just to mm-hmm. understand and see what other women go through and the and the true perspective and not the like romanticized perspective that we get through media, whether that's social media or traditional, me- you know, like movies and TV mm-hmm. shows, whatever it is. Motherhood is not always portrayed how it can really be in real life, right? So it's like I think that I I personally was also like kind of thrown off or it felt like it was unexpected for me as well because I was like why does no one talk about these things all these things that I ended Mm -hmm. up going through I'm like I had never knew that this was a thing like well how is this the first time that I'm you know am I the only one and it's like no you're not people just don't talk about this so yeah having an outlet where you know like a safe space where women can come on and share their stories is it's very Mm -hmm. healing too for for not only the person sharing but others that listen who can then be, you know, kind of validated in a way and see themselves in someone else's story and be like, wow, okay, I'm not alone. Like that feels, you know, that feels comforting. Absolutely. And I, I think for us too, it even, um, it even started in that unexpected place with our pregnancy journey. Like you were saying how you see on social media and TV, the ideal of how everything works and, you know, from the start of even trying to get pregnant, that just wasn't the case for us. And that's another thing that people just don't talk about. And I really had to kind of go and put myself out in a little bit of uncomfortable space to find people who were experiencing the same things that I was, who were feeling the same things that I was. And having a community like that, I'm trying not to cry right now, um, was really, really helpful because it it can feel really lonely no matter what stage of motherhood that you're in. I think that's something that we all share is when you're a mom, you can, you know, you can really feel like you're alone in what you're doing and you're not ever, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. The loneliness factor is huge. Even when you aren't physically alone, right? Like you have this child who's now dependent on you and with you all the time. Yeah. So like at all stages, like, through, you know, trying to conceive and then pregnancy and then have, you know, birth and now having this baby uh, grows up to be a toddler, child, adolescent, like, I feel like there's loneliness in all of those stages. And I think people who aren't, haven't gone through it yet, or maybe don't quite understand are like, but how could you be lonely? Like you have all this love around you, right? (laughs) It's like, it's not about physically being alone, right? Mm -hmm. Like the loneliness is, is deeper than that. It's like a, a sense of feeling like we 
are experiencing this for the first time or were the only ones to have gone through this or the only ones to have felt this way, um, which like you said, is not the case, but you have to find that community. You have to find those people who get you. And it does, it takes a freaking village from the beginning (laughs) all the way through. Like it really does. And we don't have that village anymore in this modern day society. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't have all of our female relatives like ready to wait on us hand and foot throughout all of it and support us, which we really need like that's a you know that's a piece that's missing from the whole experience that we used to have years and years and years ago and you know yeah. some traditional <laughs> cultures around the world are still in existence and still do try to practice that way but here in the United States we're kind of a melting pot mm-hmm. and a lot of us that don't have much maybe cultural background or don't have a lot of relatives around us we don't get that luxury which you know now it is it is a luxury nowadays yeah I'm really glad to hear though that you did end up finding that community. So let's talk let's talk about that. Let's talk about you, you know, how you got pregnant, you know, how was your pregnancy and if you prepared for postpartum at all. So I will say right off the bat that I had a plan and I thought in my mind that I knew everything. <laughs> let's all take a minute to laugh at that. <laughs> and everything was going to flow just perfectly according to that plan. And I was going to have this just absolutely beautiful pregnancy and I was going to be glowing at all times <laughs> and I was going to have the most natural childbirth experience and then I was going to breastfeed and then I was just going to recover and like you said, be weighted on hand and foot. Um, I will tell you right now that absolutely none of those things happened at all. And it really did start um, while we were trying to conceive. So, you know, from a very young age as women um, with the society that we live in, we are taught you do the thing, you get pregnant, there's your baby. That did not work for us. Um, We actually went on a two year long infertility journey that was very challenging and demanding um, physically, mentally, emotionally. It was very draining and not having answers was probably the hardest part of the process. Um, Not having doctors, especially in the beginning, who were particularly receptive to what I was trying to advocate for for myself. Um, Most OBGYNs, will tell you that you need to try to get pregnant on your own for a year before they will offer any sort of reproductive assistance. Um, That was the case with us. Uh, However, I was not having regular cycles, which was a giant red flag in the first place. So eventually we got to a point where we did receive that. Um, I did three rounds of Clomid, which is a stimulant for ovulation, and Provera, which is a stimulant for what they call a withdrawal bleed. So it's essentially trying to get your body to have a period, which isn't really a period, and then to ovulate um, when it's not ovulating on its own. And in addition to feeling all of the feelings, those medications tend to then amplify all of those feelings. So that was just a really great time for everyone. Um, And we finally got to the stage where I had had blood work run, and they didn't really see anything there. I had an HSG, which is a test where they shoot contrast into your fallopian tubes to make sure there's nothing blocking the route to get to your ovaries um, and your uterus, and there was nothing there. We really didn't have any answers. And a blanket diagnosis that a lot of doctors will try to use for that is PCOS. Um, I do not have PCOS. Anytime I am speaking with someone and they tell me they've been diagnosed with PCOS, I always tell them to ask for a second opinion because for us, that just wasn't the case. And we were also given essentially the label of unexplained infertility. We were told there was about a 3% chance we'd be able to conceive on our own naturally. So from there, uh, we moved on to preparing for an IUI. Um, Unfortunately, that did not work out due to miscommunication between my doctor's office, my insurance company, a pharmacy. There is a lot of planning and preparation and protocol that goes into something like that. And if one piece of that falls apart, 
the entire thing falls apart. And that's what happened for us. So we ended up switching doctors, which honestly was one of the best things that we could have decided. I'm very lucky that I was working with another woman at the time who had just gone through IVF. And I was telling her all of the terrible things that we were experiencing with this particular clinic. And she was like, oh my gosh, like, that hasn't been my experience at all with this other clinic. They're always available to speak with you. You can text or call the doctor after hours. They communicate really well. They make sure you're very well informed as to your medications and your protocol and your schedule. And it was two hours away from our house. But I said, you know what, we're going to go there because this sounds like exactly what we need. And I just, she had such good experience there. That's where we're going. And my husband, God bless him, was like, okay, I will drive you two hours there and back. (laughs) Um, So that was our life for probably three months. And, you know, when you're going through treatments like that, you know, even if it's just medicated, they switched me over to letrozole, which is another medication that induces ovulation. At that point, for whatever reason, um, we suspect it was the thyroid medication I'd been started on. I started to have more regular cycles. Um, So this new doctor ran all brand new tests, changed all medications, listened to me, which for me, that was like the biggest thing was having someone listen and feeling heard. So we did that for several months. And um, eventually, they did recommend we also use a trigger shot in addition to the letrozole, which is essentially just pure HCG that they have you inject into your abdomen. Um, And that round didn't work for us either. Um, And that was right before Christmas of 2019. So from there, we took a break. (laughs) We decided, you know, the holidays are coming up. You have to follow your cycle days in situations like this. And cycle day five was like Christmas Eve, and we didn't want to drive two hours away on Christmas Eve for anything. Um, So all they did was increased my thyroid medication for the time where we were just kind of laying low, and I got pregnant. That's amazing. (laughs) So that was the first unexpected surprise. Um, (laughs) It was very crazy. And it was also really frustrating because then I would have people come up to me later on and say, oh, well, you know, it was the holidays and you guys were taking a break. So you must have just relaxed. And because you just relaxed, like your body just, you know, knew what to do then. And I'm like, no, (laughs) that's not what happened. There was a change to my thyroid medication. And, you know, I do think that the HCG trigger shot, they do say that having something like that can kind of reset your hormonal system. Mm. I think both of those things had more to do with it than, you know, oh, we were just suddenly calm for the first time in our married lives. Yeah, Um, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm sure it didn't just immediately all leave your body and you're just completely stress free. I mean, it's not really how it works. (laughs) No, not really. Um, But it was a huge shock. I mean, Mm -hmm. I remember I had a fitness conference that weekend. I had been studying over the course of that summer to become a certified personal trainer. And I was had to do a fitness event. And I just remember feeling so tired, like more tired than I'd ever been in my entire life. And I vividly remember being in the bathroom of a Mexican restaurant after the event, talking to this other girl, and she was complaining about her period. And I thought, gee, you know, I I feel like mine should be coming, but like, I feel very strange. So the next morning, because, you know, at this point, I'm hoarding pregnancy tests like I have been for the past two years. I decided, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to take one. And it was positive, which was the most shocking and mind-blowing thing that has ever happened to me, ever. I immediately called the clinic. They said that I could get labs run, you know, closer to where we live to confirm the pregnancy. At that point, I was probably only three weeks pregnant. So my, um, my HCG levels were very low. They were 19, which is not great. And when you've gone through infertility treatment, they call that a beta test. So they run three different beta tests just to make sure your HCG continues to increase 
to ensure that it is in fact an actually viable pregnancy. So I did not tell my husband right away um, because we'd been let down so often. I didn't really want to burst his bubble in case that happened again. Um, But by the time the second one rolled around, it had gone up and I had had an eye doctor's appointment. And at the eye doctor appointment, I had to fill in a little bubble. Are you currently pregnant? And I was like, oh, my eye doctor can't be the first people to know that I'm pregnant. This is insane. (laughs) I have to tell my husband. And so I did. And he was very confused. (laughs) And I was like, no, really, like, this is no joke. I'm actually pregnant. And we went for the third round of beta blood work. And my HCG had continued to increase. Um, and then our clinic scheduled a sonogram ultrasound so they could, you know, make sure everything looked good. And it was incredible. You know, it was, I was seven weeks pregnant and you could see this tiny little peanut there attached to the sack and the heartbeat was there and going really fast. And it was wild. And that was February of 2020. So if you want to take a wild guess as to where the story goes next, I'm sure, I'm sure you can. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. What an experience you have been through. Whew. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Infertility stuff is a lot. It's a lot. I, I cannot even begin to imagine because I've, I haven't, that hasn't been my experience. And I, my heart goes out to you and everyone who's had to go, go through that because it's just, it's already a lot to just like, go through being pregnant and having a baby and then like that's your start you know like it's mm-hmm. but you got through it you're here you have yes. her did you did you prepare for postpartum at all or were you kind of more just like focused on just keeping the pregnancy at this point at that point I was mainly focused on the fact that I was pregnant. Um, it took a while to register which I don't know if that sounds strange but I vividly remember telling my doctor I was like why don't I feel excited like this like I do but I don't and I'm worried it's because this doesn't feel real and you know I I think a lot about my experience and the experiences of other women you know thinking about that community aspect of the women I've met you know through either online mom chats or on Instagram that you know, a lot of us experience a lot of anxiety about pregnancy and birth and postpartum. And in my mind, I really wonder if there is some sort of connection between having gone through infertility and then experiencing some sort of postpartum mood disorder, because that did end up being part of my experience. And at that time, I was not prepared at all for that to be part of my experience. I definitely had rainbows and sunshine in mind not dark gloomy clouds Mm -hmm. for sure yeah I would be interested to see yeah if they've if there's any research on that or if not just knowing more about postpartum mood disorders in general would be really helpful Mm -hmm. um I think we're you know we're kind of going in the right direction I think but we we still don't really know you know what the I mean there's things we can do to kind of support the mom and like maybe kind of hope Mm -hmm. that those things don't happen. But even in those situations, sometimes they still occur. Yeah. And just just from anecdotes I've heard from other moms who've experienced it, I do think there are connections between hormones and, you know, breastfeeding or pumping and how much sleep. And of course, all of that's related to your endocrine system. So I firmly believe that there is some sort of connection between your hormone levels and you know, whether or not you might be predisposed to having a postpartum mood disorder, but I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. This is just based on things I've heard from other women. I would love if there, you know, were studies about it. I think that they would be very important and incredibly helpful to so many women. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, even, you know, pregnancy healthcare in the United States, it just is it just doesn't seem to be a very high priority, which is very sad. Mm-hmm. No, totally. It's all, <laughs> it's really like <laughs> extremely lacking. That's a huge yeah. topic. I feel like right now is that, yeah, like maternity leave and just, yeah, mater- you know, maternal care, yeah. whether that's during pregnancy or postpartum is really, I mean, it's even, if we look compared to postpartum, we pregnancy actually mm-hmm. is, you get even more care, right? You get more appointments, you get more visits, like, 
and that's, and it's still not, <laughs> I wouldn't say, you know, the best, like there's room for improvement. So yeah, a hundred percent, but that's very interesting. And it's a topic that I'm personally interested in is postpartum, uh, mood disorders, because I was also affected by that. And many, many women are. Mm-hmm. So if you want, we can start now with an overview of your birth experience and then we can move into postpartum. It was an interesting time to be pregnant and to give birth um, in September of 2020. COVID definitely impacted, I think, a lot of the maternal care that I received. Most of my appointments were virtual. So by the time that I was actually going into a provider's office in my third trimester, it started, that's, I think, when it started to feel real because I was like, oh, they're seeing me in person. That must mean there's a baby coming very soon. Um, and actually, at that first appointment, I was hooked up to an NST, which is a non-stress test, because my blood pressure was high. Um, and then that was, I believe, a Monday. And then they had me come back in that Thursday where I had another NST. And they also... I don't know what the panel is called, but they did like a full blood panel for preeclampsia. They'd already decided I had gestational hypertension and this was just like the icing on the cake. And he basically said, look, if you have, you know, the protein that we're looking for specifically that would diagnose you with preeclampsia, we're going to have you come in on Sunday to be induced. And I remember thinking, oh, okay. Um, I was only 37 weeks and I was not prepared to have it. I thought I had a lot more time to get my life together and we hadn't set her crib up yet. And all of a sudden it was like, okay, so we have like two days to figure out what we're doing. Cool. Cool. So um, I did end up having preeclampsia and I called my boss and said, Hey, I'm not coming into work because I'm having a baby in like two days and I am supremely unprepared. My poor husband had to go to work. Um, He works in healthcare. And, you know, if you think back 2020, that's peak time for healthcare workers to be at work and not be calling off. So he worked a 12 hour shift and then set up her crib. And that Sunday we woke up, went to the hospital for 7 a.m., And they started the induction process. And that's pretty much when all of my plans for a natural childbirth went out the window. Um, (laughs) Essentially, I thought that I was going to be in in a tub with water and a midwife. But I had to have an OBGYN because of my thyroid along with an endocrinologist to monitor me. And then with the preeclampsia and the gestational hypertension, I really needed to be closely monitored and observed in the hospital. And after they gave me induction drugs, I was like, you know what? Screw it. (laughs) Just give me all the drugs. So I was in labor for close to 23 hours. Inductions take a very long time, but I will say they are incredibly boring nothing happened for like the first 12 hours. I just kind of laid there. I didn't have any pain. I didn't have any cramping. I was worried nothing was happening. Um, my dilation was very slow. Uh, at one point they had told me that my water broke, which we found out around hour 12, my water hadn't actually broken. So they had to go back in and break my water. Um, at that point, things started to feel a little ouchy. So my husband called the anesthesiologist back in and I got my epidural and I slept on and off throughout the night. Um, They came in probably about once an hour to rotate me, Um, I guess, so you don't get too much fluid on one side or the other side. But it was very disruptive. And that was like one of my I remember that being one of my biggest fears going into postpartum was the sleep aspect. Um, I can't have any caffeine because it's very triggering for my migraines. And so I was like, well, I don't want to have a migraine while I have my baby because that would be really challenging. And then I was like, well, I don't want to be really tired and having my baby because that's really challenging. But I guess I have to pick one because there really isn't another option. 
So my thought was, okay, I'm just going to be tired. But that was really scary to me. Um, So the fact that I didn't really get any sleep (laughs) that night was very stressful. And then things started to pick up toward Monday morning, which ironically, that year was Labor Day. Um, I say that her birth gave Labor Day a whole new meaning. That's like our little joke. Um, And it didn't really feel painful. It felt like pressure. So the nurse kept telling me like, we because I kept asking for more epidural and they were like, sweetie, we can't give you any more epidural because if you can't feel anything, then you're not going to be able to push. Um, so they came back in and checked everything, told me I was ready to push. Um, I pushed for about 20 minutes, which they still remember me for. I'm not entirely sure why. I guess that's not a lot of pushing. I don't know. Um, but it was very stressful. Um, <laughs> I was on my feet for most of my pregnancy because I worked in retail. Um, so when we weren't shut down as non-essential workers and we were open, I mean, I was walking like eight hours a day. So I'm sure that helped my pelvic floor. But yeah, it was something else. And they also slapped an oxygen mask on me, which I was not prepared for. And I thought something was going horribly wrong and I panicked. Found out later they do that for everyone, apparently. So I had her. My husband was like, okay, we're waiting. Like, where's the sound? She started crying. It did take a minute, which was a little scary, but everything was fine. Um, Except she was very small. So even right at 37 weeks, because she was a lower birth weight, they did consider her to be term preterm. So she wasn't technically a preemie because she was born after 37 weeks, but she was very, very small. Um, She was about five pounds, 16 ounces when she was born. She actually lost weight while we were there, which is normal. It does happen. Um, So we had to stay in the hospital for like three days before we could go home. Although that third day was kind of me pushing to stay because they kept bringing us food and I didn't really want to leave that atmosphere (laughs) of people bringing me food yeah that sounds nice it was very nice um but yeah it was a lot of being very awake you know they would come and wake me up to check my blood pressure to make sure that it was going down something that I did not know about and I only learned about later um from another woman I had connected with is that when you have preeclampsia like the only way to get rid of that gestational hypertension is to deliver the baby. And that is a life-saving procedure essentially for mom and baby. What I didn't know is that you can even have issues with your heart and your blood pressure after you deliver. So I assume that's why they were monitoring me so closely. Knowing that now is very scary. Um, I was told if I have any subsequent pregnancies, they will be putting me on a low-dose aspirin basically from day one. So they would wake me up every hour to check on me, and then they'd wake her up every hour to check on her. And for some reason, those hours never quite aligned. So it was a very sleep, no sleep, sleep, no sleep, back and forth, back and forth. I did eat. Oh, I had my stitches. That was, I didn't feel that because of the epidural, so that's great. Um, I had my first postpartum poop that everybody talks about. Um, It wasn't really that traumatic, but it wasn't the best. And then essentially, they had us watch a bunch of videos about how you don't shake the baby and you don't throw the baby and you don't turn the baby upside down and you always support the baby's head, which freaked out both of us because we were like, why would anyone do this ever? But, you know, it it happens. And that's why they have you sign all the videos or watch all the videos and sign all the forms. And then they were like, okay, here's your baby. Bye. And we both looked at each other and he goes, they're just letting us leave with a, with a, a baby, like a small infant who's like four days old. And I was like, I guess. And it's that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm in charge of this whole other human being. And I think even, you know, I I had been diagnosed with postpartum anxiety early into my pregnancy and one of the things she had me do was come up you know with a bit of a more structured postpartum plan but nowhere in that plan was a plan for the holy crap I'm a parent moment I don't think there's 
anything that can fully prepare you for that kind of responsibility. It is overwhelming. And there's the word overwhelming. (laughs) I had that same moment. I think, I think if you don't have that moment, it's like more alarming. Like what? You just feel super confident right now. Like how you've never done this before. Right. Like, yeah. So I I also remember that leaving the hospital and being like, uh, shit what do we do now? <laughs> like <laughs> help. I need, I need help. Yeah. That's all. I, I just remember thinking, kept, I kept thinking that like, I need help. I need help. I can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. Like I need help. And it was like, my husband wasn't sufficient enough for that help because I was like, well, you're also new mm-hmm. at this and we need someone <laughs> else. Like we need an expert. <laughs> like we are not cut out for this. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, where's the instruction manual? Because literally everything else comes with one and you're just not going to give me one for a baby. That's awesome. Like right. I had, I had taken some of those newborn courses where like you do the shush and the rock and the, and I was, I, all of that flew completely out of my brain. I was like, I'm, I don't remember any of this. What do I do? It was alarming. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I'm not sure evolutionarily if there's a reason for that, but I've heard that from multiple women and it happened to me too. I felt like I did so much preparation for like newborn, you know, I watched videos and I took courses and I read books and then I brought her home and I was like, pretty much all I feel like I know how to do is change her diaper. And even that I'm like terrified, (laughs) you know, every, there's just a million questions running through your mind. Then there's no one there to answer them for you, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's wild, too, because my whole pregnancy, I felt a little bit jaded almost because, you know, it was COVID and we were in lockdown. So I didn't really have I mean, I could call somebody and talk to them, but like I couldn't go somewhere and take a class or like really hang out with friends and family because I was so nervous that this pregnancy that took us so long to get like if anything happened, I would have been devastated. So I like stuck in my house unless I had to go to work and I was like did I miss out by you know not being able to go to classes like that or to go to expectant mom groups and stuff like that but nope in that moment I was like "Mm -mm, none of that would have prepared me for this it just all would have spilled right out of my brain like the online stuff I know I know (laughs) and having a baby in peak COVID is like a recipe for postpartum anxiety because we didn't know how serious things were going to be. It was really scary with mm-hmm. all the constant news and updates coming in and like the the numbers growing of how many people were infected. And it was just this really uncertain time. And then when you have a baby mm-hmm. and you bring a baby home, like the last thing you want is uncertainty because all you feel is uncertainty. Yes. <laughs> like that's all you feel is like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then on top of that, the world outside is deemed unsafe. And so... I mean, I didn't have my baby in peak COVID, but I can imagine that, that would have been pretty scary to be in that situation. And, and and also not having that physical help, you know, relatives and people that you can just like have come over and not be worried that you're going to get someone sick or that you're going to get sick. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a lot to have to, to handle. Yeah, it was really scary because again, I had, <laughs> I had a fairy tale image of my mind that, you know, I would have the baby and there would be people coming over and they would bring us food and they would hold her for a little bit or they would do something around the house. And, you know, I had even expressed at one point interest in having a doula come and help us out or like an overnight doula, just someone else to be in the house. Um, and obviously none of that was really possible or, you know, even if I thought about it, it wasn't something that I was comfortable with. You know, like you said, the idea of having someone come in and not knowing if they would get us sick or if we would get them sick, add that to anxiety. And it's just a recipe for complete disaster and just complete and utter panic postpartum. Right. So, So how did it end up going? So you got discharged from the hospital, you got home, like how did those first few weeks go? And then, you know, the subsequent months and how did going back to work look for you? So it was, it all felt very, very challenging. Um, Those first few weeks, you know, my husband was home. Um, But like you said, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, well, you're new at this too. So you don't know what you're doing. And I like, you can't help me. (laughs) Um, So there was a little bit of resentment there. And then he went back, he had to go back to work. 
and it was just me and her 24-7. And I remember being absolutely terrified to be on my own with her by my just by myself with her for so long because I was like oh my god what if something happens what do I do I don't know what I'm doing I can't have anybody over I don't feel safe going out like it was really really terrible and honestly I think I blocked a lot of that out just because it was a dark like I can't I know that sounds really dramatic but that's the best way I could think to describe it was that it was just a really, really dark time. And I even remember um, I had called him the one day. I don't even know why. I was freaking out about something and I was just so, so tired. And he called my best friend, who is our daughter's godmother, and was like, You need to go over there and check on her because she is exhausted. She hasn't slept. Like, you're working from home, just go and sit in her house for a few hours. And I was terrified to have her come over because I was like, what if we all get sick? And she was basically like, sweetie, go to bed. <laughs> you need to get some sleep. Um, and that's where I, I really think that, you know, that lack of sleep for anxiety is really not the best either. It just makes everything that much worse because these scenarios you see in your head start to feel more realistic and more probable capable of happening. So that was a little bit of a reprieve, but it was really hard. Yeah. Thanksgiving that year, we ended up staying home because I wasn't comfortable going anywhere and this was all before vaccines and stuff too. So like there, I mean, there was just nothing. And I was really scared of something happening to her after all of this work and all of this effort and all of this money that we put in trying to get pregnant and then getting pregnant. It just felt like too much. Um, so around that time, you know, knowing that I had all of these fears and all of these anxieties, we weren't able really to ask or have the support that we needed that I couldn't go back to my job. And that was really sad for me because I really did love my job at the time. They'd been great. My maternity leave was 14 weeks fully paid, which I know, especially in the US is unheard of for a lot of companies. And honestly, I don't know what we would have done without maternity leave like that. It That kind of support need. I mean, that needs to be <laughs> across the board. And I mean, even at 14 weeks, she's still only 14 weeks old. She's still not sleeping through the night. And I was so tired, but I was like, I need to find a job because we do need to have two sources of income. And I started looking online and I did find a full-time job that I could work from home. Um, so after my maternity leave ended, I ended up working at home with my daughter for almost two years. It was just me and her and my computer when my husband was at work. And obviously, you know, over time, I started letting people come over. We started kind of dipping our toe and going out a little bit. Um, but yeah, it just, that's where that lonely piece, I think, comes in. You know, I'm, I'm sure COVID didn't help that <laughs> at all because we kind of had to be alone or f at least felt like we had to be alone. But, you know, those days where it's just me, her, and my computer, you know, alone but not alone. That's the best way you can describe it. Yeah. I'm interested in the time piece. So I know because of COVID and your mm -hmm. husband was a healthcare worker, he probably had to go back to mm -hmm. work. Was it like immediate? Did he get any time off with you? He had two weeks. So that goes by so fast. And then, yeah. So then, yes, it really did. Yeah. And then you're alone with her 24 7. Yeah. So that's, oh my gosh, that's so hard. And the lack of sleep, there is a direct relationship between sleep deprivation and mental health issues. So, like depression, anxiety. Okay. Yeah. 100%. Like you need <laughs> sleep, period. It's non negotiable, but in that circumstance, you don't have a choice, right? Like you have to wake up yeah. um, and feed the baby, change the baby, care for the baby. Mm -hmm. How did feeding the baby go? So that was another unexpected challenge that we had. I wanted to breastfeed so, so badly. And we had lactation consultants in the hospital and we had lactation consultants at the pediatrician. And when it comes down to it, I, I really think it was just because she was so small 
that she just could not latch and figure out how to get milk out. Um, but I was determined. I was like, we're in a pandemic. She's going to get my milk because if I get sick and she gets sick, at least she's getting antibodies. Like I, that's that anxiety where you have these whole stories in your brain that feel like if I don't do X, Y and Z are going to happen. So gosh, darn it. I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it work because I don't want the opposite thing to happen. So I ended up exclusively pumping for two years and two months. We did have to mix formula in toward the very beginning, just so they were pleased with her weight gain because she was a little bit of a lower birth weight and then she had some trouble with feeding and dropped. So we did that for a little bit, but yeah, I, I'd be up pumping and I, I remember when I was still doing, you know, the middle of the night pump, mine was at four o'clock in the morning. So I'd wake up and I'd pump for half an hour and then I'd wake her up and then I'd feed her and then she'd go back to sleep and I'd have to wash and sterilize all of my pump parts. And then by the time I went back to bed, it was almost time to get up. And, you know, when I started my new job, it was almost time to then just get up and go to work. So that was, that was a lot. Yeah. So, yep. (laughs) Exclusively pumping mamas. And I feel like that's something that doesn't get talked about very much you know I people tend to have very strong feelings about breastfeeding and people tend to have very strong feelings about formula feeding and then we're kind of like in this weird in the middle of the pack area where like we exclusive pumpers exist but we tend to just kind of get overshadowed by everything else but we are here we are a community I found other exclusively pumping mamas online Um, including some wonderful Instagram accounts that essentially taught me how to do it because I didn't know where else I was going to learn how to do it and just kind of had to make it up as I went. Right. Well, because nobody like no one's really teaching that. I mean, you could maybe seek a class out or Mm -hmm. something, but when you prepare for feeding your baby, like I think most women, I mean, there's some that just right out the bat, just want a formula feed, but most women mm-hmm. want to breastfeed or like want to try, but they don't consider maybe even pumping um, or like exclusively pumping. They don't consider that at all. You know, maybe pumping a little mm-hmm. bit to have something, especially when they go back to work. Um, but in that, you know, those newborn days, I think that most women just assume that breastfeeding is going to work. And yes, <laughs> that's not always the case. Yeah. And it's tough, too, because I, again, it's one of those things I feel like we're taught as women that is that it's such a natural thing. And it just, it's really hard. And it was wild to me to hear from so many other moms that it was a process and it took them time. And they did have to see like Taishan consultants numerous times before they figured out a feeding method. I didn't know there were so many positions that you could hold them in or different ways you could help them latch or like tools that you could use. I, again, I just, all that preparedness, it, anything I could have done wasn't enough because I was not preparing for the right thing. Yeah, no, same. I know. I wish there's so many things I wish I would have known beforehand. And it's like, I feel like I did, but again, like it leaves your mind and then you're in the moment and it's almost this like every, every moment is like a crisis and you have to make some decision Mm -hmm. and it feels like life or death sometimes, you know, it's like, there's a lot of pressure and overwhelm kind of keeps coming up, you know, throughout this, Mm -hmm. the story. And, but it's so true. Like you really do feel like it is kind of like this crisis moment when those, those things come up and you have to make these choices. I remember that vividly with, with my own daughter and, you know, not knowing that it can take a week for your milk to really like come in fully and like Mm -hmm. how important that first week is, even though it might not seem like you're making all this milk and it's like these are things that maybe I learned at one point but I didn't remember in the moment and I'm freaking out about it thinking that my daughter's starving because I can't make her enough milk for her you know and that's that's a terrible feeling to feel like you can't feed your own baby the one thing that you're supposed to be able to do as a mom right so um it's just hard. It's so hard. And we just need as much support as possible. We need less mm-hmm. judgment from other moms. It's so divided, mm-hmm. like, you know, breast is best versus, oh, formula fed and all the things in between that are also forgotten, like exclusively pumping and combo feeding. Mm-hmm. And um, so 
yeah, being a mom is just, it's basically taking a bunch of crap all the time from every, <laughs> everybody around you. <laughs> Pretty much. Because I, I even remember complaining sometimes about how tired I was. And I'd hear from friends and family, like, why don't you just stop pumping then? And I'd be like, what do you mean just stop pumping? Like, I, I can't. Right. This feeling of <laughs> I have just, to, and they don't understand. Yeah. They don't understand that feeling that no. you have inside of this is my duty. I can't Mm -hmm. even explain to you and you'll never understand because you're not me in this exact situation feeling like this is something that I need to do. Yeah. And then part, part of that for us too, um, you know, by the time I was in to my second year of exclusively pumping, the COVID vaccines were available and I actually got to be part of a research study, which I, I don't, fully know what the outcome was as far as all the participants went where I donated my breast milk to be studied for antibodies and I was just so proud to be a part of that and they were like well you know we'd love to know more like if you for however long you pump here's the calendar and at that point I was like I want to pump just so that I can obviously feed my daughter but I also feel like this is really important for me to be a part of and contribute to because this is something that would be helpful with so many different, you know, vaccines, medications, knowing if they can help protect your baby. And I was just like so passionate about that. So that was another part of it too, was when my dad would be like, I don't understand. She's almost two. Why don't you just give her regular milk? And I was like, no, you don't understand. This is important to me. Another aspect of that lonely feeling was that I, I, was, I was finding these like little tiny things to latch on to that felt really significant to me that I could do. I was like, okay, I can contribute to this research study. Okay, I can pump for my daughter. Okay, I can do like these things that feel small and tiny and I don't really know what I'm doing, but I feel like I'm doing something because you can feel so lost in that loneliness of motherhood and it's like okay well not only do I feel lonely but I don't even really feel like I know who I am anymore and to kind of like pull yourself up through all of that and find just those like tiny things that you know you do feel that sense of passion for or things that you really want to do or the things that you really want to contribute to and that was definitely another part of it for me I was like I'm going to be an exclusive pumper and I'm going to talk about it to anyone who will listen. And this is my new personality for the current time. So yeah, obviously I've moved on from that since, but I will still talk about it to anyone who's willing to listen. Yeah. Well, that was a huge part of your story and you can share that with others who maybe are, you know, going through that or will go through that. And that's a huge, huge resource and help to, to other women. And yeah, that identity piece is, is another part that I don't think we talk about enough that I wish was more talked about in the mainstream of, you know, this kind of identity crisis that you go through after you have a baby. And it's like the person that you once were kind of gets erased or forgotten or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. swept under the rug, put on pause, whatever. But it's very confusing because for you start to feel like all you are is this baby's mom and you have no other mm-hmm parts of you anymore so when you're telling me that you're like holding on to these little pieces I'm like well that makes so much sense because you're just trying to find little bits of joy here and there outside of you know Mm -hmm. what you know in your day-to-day and a lot of times it's still even related to being a mom right but it's like still giving you some kind of purpose outside of like just feeding and caring for your baby like maybe it's still related to breast milk but you're helping other people Mm -hmm. it's like it's giving you this greater purpose, like outside of, you know, that little dyad. And that's such a big part that is just not discussed. I think that all women go through that and and it's different, you know, in terms of like the pace of it and, you know, who you become like kind of on the other side, so to speak, but we all go through that. It's, it's a part of it that 
really isn't talked about. It's kind of like, oh, you get pregnant and you have a baby and then you live happily ever after, right? Like that's what we think it's going to be like. And <laughs> it's just now, it's just you with the baby. Like it's the same you, but yep. now you have a baby. And it's like, no, it's not. I'm not the same. I am forever changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you are like physically and emotionally yeah. you are forever changed. And there really isn't any going back to who you were before because we can only go forwards mm-hmm. and kind of like recreate ourselves. And we can bring pieces from the past to the future with us if we want. But that whole being of us pre-baby is kind of like retired, you know, and we evolve and we grow. Um, and I find it really fascinating. Um, yeah. So I'm really glad that you were able to contribute to research. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. Um, like essentially the researchers, like I'd pump and then I would leave the milk in like a little cooler on our front porch. They would detail what time they were coming to pick it up. They'd come pick it up and send it off to the lab. My husband was like, oh, cool. It's like we have reverse milk men coming <laughs> to our house. Yeah. Like, that is the weirdest thing you could have possibly said, but sure. <laughs> um So, yeah, I mean, when that study does become available, I'd be like incredibly curious to see kind of what the results were. And yeah, are they going to are they going to be in contact with you? Like, are they going to reach out and say, here, here's the published paper? I honestly don't know. I really don't know. I wish I did. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, either way, you still made it, you know, you still (laughs) had some kind of impact. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. So I know obviously your experience was overwhelming and it took a lot for you to get to where you are today um and it sounds like you're doing better now and you're she's three now so I'm sure you know it's obviously gotten easier in some ways harder in others because everything's a season like we said in the beginning um yeah but do you and your husband want any more children and if so how do you know so that's a really hard question to answer mainly because we still aren't a hundred percent sure how we got pregnant the first time. It could have been the, uh, you know, the passive, you know, extra whatever from the trigger shot. It could have been from simply increasing my thyroid medication. We just don't know. So at this point, it's kind of like if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, that's okay too. And just kind of sort of making our peace with that. Um, I'm an only child myself, so I personally am like, cool, you know, that would be totally fine. Uh, He comes from a family where he's the middle child. So he's like, I'd like for her to at least have one sibling, you know, because I had siblings growing up. And I think that's really important. And that's something that I value. So it's kind of just a wait and see kind of thing for us now. Yeah, yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in like a similar boat where like, I'm an only child and now we have one and I'm kind of like, I can see a future where it's just her and we're all happy, but I can also see a future where there's one more and we're also very happy. So we're kind of like in this, I don't know place um, and kind of trying to just take it day, day by day and not really, you know, make any serious plans, but um it can be hard to also like not want to plan. I'm such a planner that it's hard for me sometimes (laughs) to not plan things out. It is hard, but I, one of the conversations that we have had frequently is like, if we do, my experience needs to be radically different from the way it was. Yeah. That was going to be my next question to you is like going through what you went through and knowing what you do now, if there is another, you know, if there is a second baby in the future, what, what would you do differently? If anything? Well, hopefully we won't have another pandemic. That would be great. Fingers um, crossed. If anyone could make sure that doesn't happen, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> That's something we like joke, but like not really joke about. Like it already happened once. <laughs> what if it did happen a second time during a second pregnancy? And I'm like, let's not go down that road of thought because it's not really productive or helpful. Um, hopefully, I mean, hopefully it would be very different. Hopefully I would be constantly around other people and I'd be able to have an in-person gender reveal as opposed to a virtual one and an in-person baby shower versus a virtual baby shower. Like all those little things. I just, it sounds so silly, but that I feel like I missed out on because of it. And that I was so looking forward to because we had gone through infertility. Like I wanted to do all the things And then, you know, making sure that my 
health is in order as far as any medications I would need to take to be more prepared to have that elevated blood pressure and to know what to do um, to generally just take better care of my health. Definitely be in therapy more frequently during the prenatal and the postpartum period. Those are things that we've talked about quite a bit. And I mean, like I said, as far as the actual childbirth experience went, that was that was just fine. If I could have another childbirth experience just like that, that that'd be okay with me. It was kind of everything else that I'm like, okay, if everything else could have been a little bit different, that'd have been great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You got robbed of being able to celebrate <laughs> the joy of finally getting what you wanted, which you tried to for for so long. You finally got pregnant. Yeah. You. Re- weren't even really sure how but you did and she stuck and then you weren't even able to like share that with you know the people that you care about and that's that is a yeah you got gypped so to speak so totally get that next time you want to make sure that all those things are lined up you're having a baby shower you're having a gender reveal you're inviting all the friends and family like everyone's gonna be there (laughs) and it's like those silly little things but it was like we missed a rite of passage. Almost. Yeah, those things matter. They might be small and seem trivial, but like those things are part of the process that we expect and that we, you know, if that's something mm-hmm. that we want, then we deserve to have that as part of our process. Yeah. And I almost thought about writing, this was like a while ago when I was going through the pregnancy, writing like a what to expect when you're expecting the unexpected or like what to expect when you're expecting during the pandemic or something is like a serious but like kind of funny guide for like here's what to do when all of your pregnancy and postpartum plans just kind of fall to pieces around you and you just kind of have to go with your gut and I hope it all works out yeah I would honestly I think that would do really well because (laughs) I mean hopefully there's not going to be another one of those but it's kind of like a okay how can I like overly prepare (laughs) for circumstances that I might not foresee or have any control over right which is just new parenthood in general and then the pandemic was just this other massive layer that we weren't expecting surprise (laughs) yeah it would almost be like a sarcastic humorous how-to guide I think yeah yeah I honestly love that Uh, Okay. Any resources that you want to share with the listeners or anything else you want to share about your story, Deborah? Oh my goodness. Resources. I mean, I read what to expect when you're expecting, but again, it didn't have the, in the pandemic part. So it wasn't particularly helpful. I can probably, I, I can't think of them offhand, but I do have the Instagram handles of the exclusive pumpers that I could send to you um, if anyone's interested in those because those probably were the most invaluable thing to me and then I would just say to anyone listening like if you if you even feel any sort of pull of like fear or anxiety um, you know they always say oh you know just watch after the first two to four weeks or something like that after you have the baby. Oh, it's probably just the baby blues if it only lasts that long. Um, But to just straight up ask your doctor, like if you're already feeling that when you're pregnant or, you know, even well into your pregnancy, any sort of, this doesn't feel like quite the right feeling or emotion for me, ask them for those resources on maternal mental health, ask them for resources on postpartum depression, anxiety, I even learned about from other women, there's such thing as postpartum rage and postpartum OCD, like all of these postpartum mood disorders that I didn't even know existed. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I think mine's just anxiety, but no, I'm not so sure um, because it can help. I feel like in the moment to have a label to put on something like that, that really feels out of your control. And then from there to speak with other women who are having those experiences Uh, But definitely, you know, any resource that your OBGYN office has, get it because it will be invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. That's such a good tip because the postpartum mood, the postpartum mood stuff is real. And yeah, there's a huge Mm -hmm. spectrum and it's better to know as much as you can beforehand before you're in it so that you can recognize Mm -hmm. maybe when something is possibly coming up for you. So Love that. Love that tip. We'll get 
the IG and I'll put that in the show Mm -hmm. notes. Um, Where can listeners find you if they want to reach out to you, if you're open to that? So I, I had this idea a while back and I'll be honest with you, I haven't done a whole lot of it because I have a three-year-old and a job and a husband and all the things and it kind of got pushed to the back burner. Um, but I had this crazy idea that I wanted to sort of try to make a place where postpartum moms could connect mainly with fitness and nutrition, but I kind of wanted to like link that mental health aspect into it too. Um, so I started an Instagram account. It's called at Mama Minutes Fitness. Um, there's not a whole lot up there right now, but my hope eventually is that I will be able to pull some of those resources together where it becomes like a holistic approach if you need something postpartum, something that maybe, you know, your doctor's office wouldn't have a go-to guide on or something that you necessarily feel comfortable talking to a friend about where you could be like, okay, you know, I'm feeling kind of down today. Let me see if I can connect with somebody else. I just, I have all these grand plans that I would love to see come from it. I don't know if that'll actually happen, but essentially I want to find a place where women feel comfortable talking about their health, their mental health, their struggles with motherhood, um, because all of that is so important. And I really believe that all of that is connected, especially in the postpartum wheelhouse. That's, that's something I feel very strongly about. That was a very long-winded answer. No, that sounds like (laughs) such an amazing resource. I just wanted to say like, yeah, that's, I'm a hundred percent in agreement. Having a hub like that to go to or having some place that you can reach out to other women and talk to them about what you're going through and feel validated and kind of like it to release some things definitely plays a direct role in how they're experiencing their life and their mental health and how they're showing up and their ability to be present and be a good mother. So Mm -hmm. love that. Um, I hope that that comes to fruition for you. (laughs) I will definitely be checking it out and we'll link that in the show notes for sure. Deborah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. It's been really nice chatting with you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone who could benefit from this space. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at perinatal.nutritionist. That's P-E-R-I-N-A-T-A-L dot nutritionist. And be sure to follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes. If you'd like to support the podcast further, please leave us a review in whatever platform you listen to us on. This helps get the word out there, which helps moms heal and thrive. And as always, thank you for listening.